Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. So, are you ready? Are you ready? A little while ago, we got to do something pretty amazing. That lively crowd you just heard was actually really small, only about 100 people. And me and this super excited audience got to hear the Lumineers, a band that's toured the world and played stadiums. This show was different. The two bandmates, Jeremiah Freights and Wes Schultz, sat down for an interview for this podcast and agreed to play for a small audience of people in recovery, or those connected to it somehow. You see, these guys recently made an entire album about how addiction affects generations of a family. The record is called Three. So today, we've got something a little different for you. An intimate conversation, plus some good music, with the Lumineers, recorded in Denver, where Wes and Jeremiah live. This is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. To kick off this special event, the Lumineers opened the evening with a song about a woman who is struggling with substance use and the character is based on someone close to Wes Schultz. So this first song is called Gloria. Glory, yeah. You made us sit and watch. 
never show away Give me back on my own two feet I would lie awake But you don't lie awake for me Every night away Every day alone Get me back on my own two feet I would lie awake But you don't lie awake for me guys thanks a lot one uh, song set <laughs> <laughs> that's gotta be hard right you're just getting started and you gotta sit down and talk right i'm pumped yeah i'm a little pumped up right now these first few questions are gonna be difficult <laughs> um you guys just played gloria uh which is uh, from the new album when I first heard this album that you guys put out, I had a tremendous emotional response to it as someone who has gone through recovery because I lived so many of those characters, or I could see a lot of my own family members as some of those characters. Gloria is living a troubled life as an alcoholic. Wes, let me ask you a few questions first. Who inspired Gloria? It's The answer's kind of complicated because I think part of what we set out to do was tell these stories as real and as raw as we could. And, and I think I wanted to keep a level of anonymity with the person I was singing about. But it's, it's a member of my family that um, I think as, as I dove into it, I, I think one of the goals was to try to write it. And if, if she heard it, she would feel like it was telling the truth, it, you know, from both sides. I wanted there to be her side of the story too. So in the song... Um, there's a piano that takes over when Jer is like, dit, 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 dit. Mm-hmm, and that's sort mm-hmm. of, that's sort of the other perspective. The, the song starts out from, I think, like the child's perspective saying to the parent, kind of like, why are you doing this? You know? And then the piano part is the, the other side of the story. Did you know me when I was younger than I could take the whole world with me? And it's like, I was somebody and I still am. And, and I think that that was the the hard part about writing about addiction was not trying to make it like a caricature, but to try to tell stories through scenes instead of trying to sum it all up. It's yeah. too big of a subject. Well, and also, like, you nailed it. Even addicts at our worst, there's still a, a part of us that wants to be better and, and has those memories of being, like, well. Yeah. And so hearing that piano against your really strong lyrics is really it's it's quite a contrast yeah and I I found the original demo and it was like um heaven help me now heaven show the way get me back on my own two feet there's this eternal hope almost like when you're drowning you're always going to try to swim to the surface and get air Mm. it's a part of being a human being is believing and having hope even in the worst of circumstances yeah um even when some even when your whole family feels hopeless about it so yeah it's a it's definitely, it was like a high wire act trying to write about it 
just because I knew she might hear it, and I wanted her to understand it instead of feel attacked or something like that. Well, let's talk about her, and we're not going to say precisely which family member this is because, of course, we want to protect her privacy, but uh, how did your relative's downward spiral begin? I don't know. I mean, that, that's like the great mystery. Um, I just, I think if, if, if we knew, maybe that would be an easy place to address it. Um, I feel like my introduction to it was that you don't talk about it and you don't mention it and, you know, it's a taboo in the family. So that really threw me off because it was so obvious and we were all kind of playing along with the charade. You told me recently, Wes, um, speaking of love, that the hardest part about dealing with your relative's addiction is that you love her so much, right? What do you mean by that? Like, why is that so hard? I think that just part of it is that every part of fiber of my body just wanted to stop caring and just say, well, go do, go live your life. I don't care. Like you can't hurt me anymore. But that's like, it's almost what's beautiful about it is like families band together in this way that they don't even sometimes have a choice. It's, it's just what makes, I think addiction, a social disease. It makes it a family uh, event. It's not like this thing that's isolated to that person. When I was using um, really hard, the worst thing was when people would tell me that they loved me. Because the last thing you want to hear when you're closing the blinds and shutting off your phone and and you're getting high by yourself is that you're hurting someone and that people care about you. That it was hell for me to hear that. But ultimately, though, it, it helped in my recovery. And Wes... The lyrics from the song, Gloria, they found you on the floor. Gloria, my hand was tied to yours. That's the metaphor you're talking about, right? That their addiction is your addiction, too. Yeah, I mean, you feel like you're on the roller coaster with them. And it leads, for me, that, for me, was a source of, at first, a lot of anger. You know, like resentment. Like, why are you bringing me? I didn't I didn't sign up for this ride. Yeah, We're all taking care of ourselves. Why can't you take care of your... It's a very, like, defensive... Why are you hurting me, kind of thing? Yeah. And to clarify what I said, even though I didn't want to hear that people loved me, thank God I heard that. Yeah. Because ultimately that, that registered. Um, the album follows uh, generations of a family that's really become crippled by drugs and alcohol. Why did you guys want to tell a big story about a whole family to talk about addiction? Why did you choose a family? Well, I think part of it was um, there was this mystery about, like, how does that cycle break if... Can it be unbroken? Is it handed down? Is it social? Is it genetic? What's going on here? I think using generations to see that and explore that, I think was important. And it felt like putting this in different bodies was instead of just this one person felt more authentic to, I guess how, how big it was, how big of a like thing it was. And you see a ripple effect in families. And so I think wanting to know if there was a way out, but not really having a resolution, the album doesn't have that and the songs don't really have that. It's more just how do we get out of this and without like abandoning someone, you know? Were you guys at all hesitant? You're the Lumineers. You guys are a big deal. Um, Jeremiah, were you at all hesitant to put out this kind of album? Because it's, it's really heavy stuff. I'm sure a lot of your fans were surprised by it. Yeah, I think... There was a moment of hesitation, but in some sort of abstract way, I think 
we knew the music was great. Uh, it felt like personally the strongest album that we've ever written together. It being our third Lumineers album, we've been writing together probably 15 years now, written a ton of songs, a ton of bad ones, and I think some good ones. And this album, <laughs> this album felt like our best album to date. Not just because it's our newest album. I think that's like the artist's tendency. Your newest stuff you think is the greatest. I actually think this is our best album. And uh, some people are like, this is sad or this mm-hmm. feels heavy. And it's like, well, literally any song that is sad or heavy has probably changed your life for better. Um, yeah. I don't really know that much like sugary, saccharine songs that, like, you know, Baby Shark. That's not really <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to change your life. Um, whether it's heartache, addiction, some sort of trauma, tragedy. Um, that's the good stuff in life. It's 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 hard and shitty. It's a sad song. Yeah, Baby Shark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys are gonna play Baby Shark tonight. I hope. Right. <laughs> um, was this almost like a therapeutic thing for you guys? The making of this album. If the goal of therapy is to feel no closure on the subject, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I I feel like maybe in in some ways yes. I think it's it's a very uh, neat way to wrap it up, and I've done that, where it's kind of like, this is free therapy, I write songs. Uh, it's not totally true. I think it's partially just, um, it's cathartic to scream. It's cathartic to express yeah. all of these things. I think mostly it's cathartic to, to, try, to try to tell the truth. I think I felt so, I felt so bound and like tied up by like the idea that we weren't allowed to talk about this among each other or to that person. Uh, as candidly as maybe it was happening, um, that really freaked me out. And I, part of this album like allowed me to say things that I felt very muzzled. Wes, your family member, um, what's her current situation? I mean, we tried to get her a place and, um, you know, so she could take care of herself and have her own space. And that kind of blew up in our faces and um, she ended up uh, in jail and then homeless and we're not really sure we placed a missing persons report and we're not really entirely sure what's going on and um i think that's that's that that ghost that follows you around where you don't even know the next call what it's going to be about or where it's coming from and the lack of closure i think is really difficult about the situation too yeah um I want to hear you guys play some more music and i think you guys want to hear that too um What are we gonna hear? This next song uh, made our album explicit lyrics. So um, we're gonna have to bleep it because it's CPR. So you can imagine the moment, but uh, there's like three F-bombs in this song. They're just gonna be like ghosts. It's called Leader of the Landslide. Every night I saw you there in your old wicked chest. You were wrong, I was right. Didn't matter any fights. Coffee mug filled it up. Always knew what it was. Side for years, you could never love without crying. 
she dead? Is she fine? Every day, every night. Fate has dealt me a lonely blow, I said. Try to help and only hurt. In the end, I made it worse. Is she dead? Is she fine? Every day, every night.
going to take a quick break now. We've heard about Wes's family, but we haven't even talked about the way Jeremiah's life changed forever because of addiction. And of course, we'll hear more music. Back in just a minute. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. There's another reason the Lumineers were so motivated to write an album all about addiction that we haven't even talked about yet. When Jeremiah was about 14, he lost his brother Josh to a heroin overdose. Josh was older. He was 19. And these guys, who are now the Lumineers, also grew up together in suburban New Jersey. So Wes also knew Josh. They were actually really good friends. They loved boxing and making art together. And Jeremiah, he remembers having fun with his big brother, too. I can easily remember the good times, like going to the beach and building Legos together. And he played a lot of guitar. He was... He'd play like Pink Floyd, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, and our bedrooms were right next to each other. So that, that was a huge like influence. And I remember I was learning drums at the time. So we'd kind of jam together and play, you know, like Paint It Black by The Stones or Good he stuff. was learning Pink Floyd guitar solos. And um, it was pretty, I don't know if it was my parents shielding me from it or if my brother was good at hiding it or if it was just one of those things that... It was right there in front of my face, and I chose not to see it. I don't really remember, though, a whole lot of, like, which maybe was made it worse, the shock, when he did die. Because I was like, oh, it's not it's not at that point, you know. That doesn't happen to someone like me. That's never, you know, that's not going to happen to him. Um, so I don't really remember a whole lot of those kind of, like, you know, typical scenes of, like, oh, he was out all night, and we were worried sick. Yeah. I'm sure my parents could give different stories, different tales, but yeah, I don't really remember stuff like that, to be honest. What kinds of substances was he using? Uh, He was using a lot. I mean, he was caught in high school by this history teacher. He was smoking weed in his car and walked in from, you know, like the outside field or something, walked in. And it's sort of, I don't think it was the history teacher's fault, obviously, but it sort of spiraled. Uh, it, It splintered this thing where my brother... I got sent down to the nurse, and then you get you get um, like suspended for two days or some sort of like mandated two day suspension. And if I remember correctly, he never went back to Ramsey High School. He went to a, a different school, a different okay. high school, 
with, for lack of a better description, other troubled teens, other troubled youths. Um, I remember one time in October, about nine months before he died, my mom came into the room and said, like, you know, honey, your your brother was arrested last night. He was in a neighboring town in the, like a grocery store parking lot around two or three in the morning. And I think he had uh, taken PCP, smoked PCP. I don't even know what you do with that, but I think he had smoked it. And then supposedly he went into the supermarket and drank some Drano. He ran out of drugs and thought that was a good idea and was in the ICU for about two or three weeks with, I think, second degree burns on his like esophagus and you know, at that time, I think I was 13, 14. I didn't really have a, any gauge of what was going on. And I can actually remember thinking, he'll get through this. This is a phase. It's like a bad case of strep throat or something. Like, you get better. You get yeah. you take antibiotics or you get through it, and we'll, we'll laugh about this someday. Um, that obviously never happened. But, I, yeah, I just remember a couple of instances like the ones I just described where I had zero idea of how I would have handled that. Um, even now, I have a you know, a 20 month old son of my own. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any age where you'd really be equipped to understand how to deal with that. You, you, you would try your best, obviously as a parent, um, how to, how to help your son or daughter out, whatever is going on. But yeah. Can you, what ultimately, how did, how did things end with Josh? I know he. So basically that was in, I think October of 2000. And then he went into uh, the hospital ICU, had a lot of anger towards, it seemed like everybody. I'm sure he was in a really terrible spot, but um, and I remember he never came home to our house. There was my grandmother uh, lived in Pompton Lakes, which was a couple of towns over, mm-hmm. and uh, he ultimately went to go live with her. And I guess that was a way to change location. And he was in and out of rehabs. And um, yeah, it was around Memorial Day weekend where. Um, he was living with my grandmother and she went to church and I think she called up to Josh and thought he was sleeping in. And when she came back from church, she went upstairs and I think she like touched his leg or something. And it was like a block of ice. And then she called, I remember she called our house in a uh, Ramsey and I picked up the phone and I thought, I honestly thought she was dying. She was so hysterical. I thought something was wrong with her. And then she kept sobbing and saying, Josh, Josh, Josh. And then oh my gosh. I gave the phone to my mom and the context of it, just to try to add a little levity, I was playing a computer game with my buddy Simon and it was just this absurd, like we're playing this game and it's like, I don't know, a shooter game or something. Mm-hmm. And like my mom is like, you know, crying at the table and I'm like, oh dude, I think you got to go. Like, it's just absurd. <laughs> um, I'm sure my mom was like, huh? like Simon, do you have to go home now? <laughs> like, uh, I don't think we really knew. I, my mom probably knew and I, you know, the first, they say the first st- step of uh, what grief is denial. And I remember running upstairs and I was changing my clothes and I just like, yeah, like the most massive amount of denial, like this is not happening. And, um, yeah, we drove over there and yeah, the bad news was true. So to what extent did, did you guys help each other through that time? Four years later, we, we got together and really started spending time together. And so when me and Wes started writing, one of the first songs that I think we ever tried to write together was like, a lyrical song about Josh's passing. And then ultimately we wrote songs about Wes's father passing away of cancer, or it was immediately like this cathartic, even though we were also starting out doing covers of, you know, cover band type songs, mm-hmm. we started writing originals. And for me, that was like the real high. That was the massive addiction was writing original songs with Wes and trying to sort through all these feelings and like misunderstanding and you know, grief and things like that. So. 
you guys had to grow up really fast. And so you guys started at a very young age writing about grief. Yeah, and, and oddly, I mean, we had a town of 15,000 people, but I knew at least a couple of people that I was friends with that overdosed and passed away in this tiny little town. Hmm. Jeremiah, I know you don't want to talk too much about yourself. Um, you also had a period where you were partying a little too much yeah. for your liking. And I want to congratulate you. You've been sober for how long now? Uh, be five years in August. So let's just say four and a half. All right. Yeah. That's great. Why did you decide to get sober? For me, I think it was... Maybe that old adage, tired of being sick and what is sick, it? Sick, and, sick being, and tired, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think it just was, it really dawned on me that it was affecting relationships. Um, I think the biggest person that saved my life was my wife. Um, I think that her seeing it before, I think I was going down the road where I would have been um, eventually maybe closer to a Gloria-like character. Oh, wow. You think you, you're never going to be like that, but to be honest, I, I mean, I don't know, but... Um, you know, her seeing that in me early on and really being supportive of that. And thankfully, too, that she doesn't, she's very, uh, you know, she'll have like half a glass of wine and be done. And I'm like, I don't get that. That's like, you know, I could have six glasses of wine and be like, let's, you know, now we've started. And I'm not necessarily proud of that. That's just a reality of but it's the truth. my it's genetic truth. makeup. Yeah. Um, I've told people at times it was like eating a cheeseburger and being like, I can't wait to have another cheeseburger. And you're like, you're already eating a cheeseburger. And that's how it felt sometimes with drinking. And our, and our lifestyle, too, um, unfortunately, I think just naturally enables it. It's funny. If you were to say, like, give me three shots of, like, tequila, people would be like, yeah. And if you're like, can I have a water? They're like, are you okay? Are you sick? <laughs> Is everything all right? And it's, it's, it's these things that I've noticed along the way of sobriety where it's, like, literally sometimes on a long international flight, it's easier to get wine than water. And I'm like, oh, where's the water lady? You know, where's the water person? Um, and I think that uh, it was – I think I realized it two, about two years before I became sober that I wanted that. It was like I was not waiting for something to happen, but I think I knew subconsciously, like – this is not fun anymore. This is not improving my life. It's taking away from it in some way. But you buy into that you know, feedback loop. And I think for me, the biggest fear I had was somehow I'm not going to become creative. That's my career. That's how, you know, that's our livelihood. That's like the, the biggest thing in my life. One of the biggest things in my life is supposedly being creative. And I'm like, you know, you lose the drugs, you lose the alcohol. And I remember playing the first probably 40, 50 shows with the Lumineers. It was a really terrifying experience because now you're on stage, you're vulnerable. Whereas you used to be able to get to a, maybe a state of oblivion, you know, where you're just kind of, you're just up there and you're kind of like, I'm one with the music and, you know, <laughs> you're free. Um, now I can get to that place sober, but it took many shows of being like, wow, this is tough. There's a lot of people out there and this is a nerve wracking experience. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, I had a couple people in my life say like, you will become you know, more creative. You will feel closer to music. I know you don't see that now, but promise yeah. me you will. And I was like, I definitely don't believe you. There's no <laughs> way that's going to happen. But it takes, a, it, it just, you just had to experience it yourself. I mean, when I started my career in television as, as a sports anchor, I could not go on the air or I thought I couldn't go on the air without a shot and a, and a line. That just was total normal behavior. That's just what I do. Mm. And when I'm like, well, how can I get sober? How can I write sober? How can I tell a good story sober? And the truth is, is that you're a better storyteller because you're not clouded by drugs and alcohol. 
the, the best thing about it is I don't miss it. Is And you find that you don't really need it. Yeah. No, and, it's true. Yeah. It's been interesting, though. Like, for me, I almost never use the word sober. I probably am using it more because I know the room I'm in right now. Um, I don't have a problem with saying I'm sober. I just think that society has made that word a bad word a little bit. Like, I think personally, I tend to say I've refrained from alcohol or mm-hmm. I will still, you know, white lie to people said I've never really drank. I don't drink because I don't want to get into a therapy session yeah. with some random person after a gig and like, you know, whatever. It's like that. that's going to be a heavy 15 minutes potentially that if I'm into it, I'll get into it. But if I'm not, I don't want to, you know, inadvertently get into a heavy conversation about that. But I do think that society's kind of made that word a weird uh, stigma where, oh, you're sober? That means you were a bad person before. <laughs> it's like, well, no, I was, you're a sick person or you have, yeah. you had these tendencies or you did these things that can sometimes be deemed as being bad. And, and sometimes it's just easier not to have to explain yourself. But I think the more people talk about this stuff, the less we have to explain ourselves when we say no to a drink. Even in New Jersey, where we're from, there's, yeah, there's so many friends of friends or actual friends or family members, in my case, that have died or been close to dying from prescription drug abuse or the street drug, heroin or crack or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I still know people in my life that are even functional, you know, addicts or alcoholics. And I don't know if they know that, but I'm like, you are. I mean, (laughs) I see that. Yeah. Well, I mean... You guys have been terrific. I really, really, really appreciate you guys talking about this stuff tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us here. And just a quick note about this last song from the Lumineers album, Three. It's another snapshot of addiction. The lyrics are heart-wrenching. Here's the song called Donna. The Lumineers playing to an audience of people in recovery. Take the name.
Thanks again to the Lumineers for an uplifting show. They finished the night with a great encore, a song Wes calls cathartic. He and Jeremiah invited the audience to stand up and sing along to Stubborn Love. And thank you guys for being here tonight. This has been really special for us. I hope you guys had a good time. July and Steve and Back from Broken is a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Thanks to people in recovery who helped us develop this podcast, Ben, Matthew, Sean, and Mateo, thank you so much for your guidance. If you know someone who might benefit from stories like this, please share this podcast with them. We spent more than a year building this show on research, interviews, production, and editing because we know it'll help people, but it does cost money. People who listen to this podcast, people just like you, make it a reality. If you can, please contribute to the making of future episodes at backfrombroken.org. People don't always get what you're singing about, you know? Like, Jorge was about a breakup, and people get married to that song. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a big wedding song. So, yeah. and like, that's fine. The lyrics, I'll take guys. it, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's great, but... Or even Gloria, I had a four-year-old sing Gloria to me on like a ukulele, and he's like, Gloria, there's easier ways to die. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and it was like a horror movie, but like also really cute. <laughs> you can see photos of this special live episode and the Lumineers performing at backfrombroken.org. The Back From Broken team is Rachel Estabrook, Brad Turner, Kevin Dale, Rebecca Romberg, and Daniel Mesher. And a lot of other folks made this episode possible. Thanks go out to Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Hart Van Denberg, Kevin Beatty, Kendall Smith, Jody Gersh, Doug Clifton, Matt Hurst, Peter Kramer, Urban Coffee, Corey Jones, and the Clock Tower Cabaret in Denver for hosting our event. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find it. I'm Vic Vela. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Long to the line. Yeah.